In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Brothers, sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So this is going to be the introductory lesson and the first lesson uh, as part of the this mini-series uh, that is going to be directly addressing the Prophethood uh, of the Prophet of Islam, uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. And actually, it seems to be very timely, it just so happened that these days are actually the birth, we are celebrating the birth of the Prophet So. Inshallah, the, the timeliness of this is uh, very convenient and uh, a blessing for us. So, without going too much into recapping everything we have said, it's just to situate the methodology and then uh, the topic. So, in terms of methodology, we are following a book uh, by the name of Durus Fi Al-Aqid Al-Islamiyah. The author is Sheikh Muhammad Taqi Musbah Al-Yazdi. Uh, that is available in English, although I'm relying on the Arabic for the course, so you may find some discrepancy between the terminology I use and the terminology in the official or unofficial, I'm not sure, uh, English translation. Uh, so that's the first point. The second point is, as we have said, the book is actually separated or divided into three volumes. Volume one has to do with uh, Tawheed, so the oneness of God and divine justice, uh, so God and his attributes. And then the second volume has to do with prophethood and imamah. Uh, so we have until now covered, we have just finished the midpoint in volume two, uh, where we have finished general prophethood, and we'll talk about that in a second. And we're just about to start specific prophethood, and then we'll talk about imamah, and that will conclude the second volume. And the third volume has to do with the afterlife. So from the moment a human being dies until everything that ensues. So inshallah we'll get to that uh, when we get to that and that would be from lesson 41 and upwards to lesson 60. So in terms of the topic itself, when we started the topic of prophethood we said that generally speaking in when we learn or we read in Islamic theology, it's presented as two, uh, as two fields or two subfields. One of them is what is usually referred to as or general prophethood and under that heading we study the topics that are applicable to all prophets so we, we try to answer for instance why do we need prophethood uh, what is the is it a necessary or a luxury comfort uh, that human beings require prophethood and revelation uh, and then we talked about specific topics related to prophethood. So for instance, the traits of a prophet, uh, and chief amongst them is the trait of infallibility, and why do we say that prophets need to be infallible, or asma? Uh, what happens if our prophets are not infallible? What happens to the revelation? What happens to human beings being able to uh, emulate them and use them as role models? And then we talked about an important question, which is, how do we determine that someone is actually a prophet or not? So when we say that someone has made a claim to be receiving a message, a revelation from God, what do we do from there on? How does that link with the topic of us making sure that this claim is actually 
valid. So the reliability and the authenticity of the claim of prophethood. So these are the points that we talked about in general when we talked about general prophethood and the 10 lessons that have, that have to do with general prophethood. And we said the second half of that topic is usually addressed under the heading of specific prophethood or special prophethood. And this is where we talk about specific prophets. So when we talk about, let's say, Prophet Adam or Prophet Noah or Prophet Musa or uh, Jesus, peace and blessings upon them all, here is where we take those same questions. So we should have established those principles under general prophethood. So now that we understand the necessity of revelation, the necessity of prophethood, the necessity of the infallibility of prophets, how do we determine that something, someone is a prophet or not, and therefore the nature of miracles and so on and so forth, this is where we apply them. So once we understood the main principles, the general principles, which we did in the first 10 lessons, and by the way, if someone is just joining us, they're all available online, so it's very easy to go back and recap the last 10 lessons where we addressed all of this, the general principles. In the specific prophethood, this is where we go to a one prophet, a specific prophet, and then we see how it applies to them. So if we read, for instance, that a certain prophet conducted themselves in a certain way, and we ask ourselves, is it still compatible with infallibility or not? So now we're talking about the infallibility of a specific prophet, not the topic of infallibility as it applies to all of them. The same thing with miracles. So now that we establish that miracles are necessary to establish the authenticity, the validity of the claim of prophethood, now we may go to Prophet Musa or Prophet Muhammad and see what do we mean in this case when we talk about miracles? And why is there a difference between their miracles? Why was his miracle this and someone else's miracle something else? Okay, so this is all addressed under special prophethood which we haven't touched and which we are just about to start. But given that this lesson, this entire lesson is built on the idea that this is a quick overview, this is an introductory level course, in an ideal world we would go through all the prophets and we would do this exercise with all of them. Uh, but given that, again, this is an overview and we don't have time to do that, we're going directly to the prophet that to us is the most relevant and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So we're going directly to our Prophet, the Prophet of Islam, to see how all of this applies to him. So we're going to talk about, in passing, we may mention a little bit about his infallibility, but we'll see that the topics that are going to be addressed are the following. So the first one has to do with his prophethood, the claim to prophethood of Prophet Muhammad That's first topic, and inshallah, this is what we're covering today. And then the miraculous nature of the Holy Quran. So this is the next lesson the authenticity of the Qur'an, or the validity of the claim that it is actually from God, the universality of Islam, and the finality or the seal of prophethood. So that Prophet Muhammad is the last of the prophets and that his revelation is the last of revelations. So these are the topics that are going to be addressed over the next four to five lessons, inshallah. So this should situate anyone joining in, uh, for this mini-series. As we said, this is a part of a much larger chorus, but this mini-series has to do with Prophet Muhammad and his miracle, the Holy Quran. So the manner in which the lesson is constructed by the author uh, is basically in two halves. The first half is a rather longish introduction, uh, and the second part of it, 
uh, he starts talking specifically about the proofs to establish the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad. So in the introduction, and these are many of the points that we have already addressed, so there's nothing really complicated here. It should be pretty straightforward. We have already talked about the fact that, based on our narrations and what we are told, we know that tens of thousands, and this is not an exaggeration, tens of thousands of prophets have been sent to humanity. And all of them have left their mark. All of them have been trying to guide humanity, and we see the marks that they have left on human society in all sorts of the different fields and aspects and domains of life. Okay, so this is what we believe, and we talked a little bit about that, the contributions of prophets in general, or messengers and prophets, to human civilization. While we said that the main point of sending a prophet is not for the advancement, the material advancement of human beings, because human beings can do that on their own. So while that is happening when prophets are sent, this is not the main purpose of sending a prophet. Human beings can evolve and progress and learn from their lessons and explore nature and discover and, and, and on their own. Their abilities and their faculties allow them to do that on their own. So when this is happening, it's, a second, it's, it's by accident that it's happening. It's a secondary reason for sending prophets to human beings. The main reason is to guide them spiritually and give them the answers that cannot be reached by human intellect, by human reason, if it is not being aided, if it's not being supported by anything outside of your own faculties as a human being. You're going to be stuck with alternatives where you can't really decide which one is stronger or weaker because you don't have access to those truths. Okay, and the, We talked about that at the beginning of the lessons that had to do with general prophethood. So in detail so you can go back to that. And then we said between the prophets themselves there are distinctions. So we said some prophets are sent to larger groups of people and some prophets are sent with more detailed messages. And then we talked about specific prophets that have been sent to humanity and those prophets were sent with more detailed scriptures and that are supposed to be valid for humanity at large. And in their time whichever other prophets might have existed they should have been under the fold of those five prophets. And we said those are Prophet Nuh, Prophet Ibrahim, Prophet Musa, Prophet Isa, and this is the last one, Prophet Muhammad And so here's where we talked a little bit about this idea of the difference in scriptures. And we said that it's not, the main reason is not always when, when a new prophet is being sent, the main reason is not always because there's a distortion, there's a loss, there's a fabrication, there's a, uh, there are changes that are introduced into the scriptures. That's one of the reasons. But another one, and inshallah we'll come back to that, another main reason is that the stage that humanity is in requires a different system. And these systems are not fundamentally different. They're the same, but they complement each other, and they're more adapted to a specific period of time. Okay, so this is what's happening from scripture to scripture. So we said that these five prophets, we refer to, to them as ulil azm, or the prophets who are, have, are more resolute, or have more patience, or so on and so forth, different translations. So those prophets, are the ones that we call the Azm, or they're the ones who have been sent to humanity in general. 
Here in this lesson, the author, the author is going to concentrate a little bit more on the second argument, which we mentioned quickly in the past. So you'll see that the rest of the lesson is going to concentrate a little bit more on the other argument of, or the other reason or justification for sending a multitude of prophets with a multitude of scriptures. And that reason is perhaps the one that we hear more often. And that is that there are distortions that are taking place in those books. And we'll mention quickly at the end why this is an important topic. Because for us right now, as human beings living today, not living in the past, living today, we want to be able to reach a spiritual guidance through these revelations. So for establishing that the, 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 the road through those scriptures is blocked because they're unreliable today, then we are limited through only one path. And this will be the argument that is kind of not said specifically in this, or explicitly in this lesson. Okay, so we'll mention it at the end quickly. So here the author basically summarizes the argument by stating that if we look at scriptures today, so this is not to deny that all of those prophets were sent with scriptures and that those scriptures were full of guidance for humanity. The problem is that distortions were introduced intentionally and unintentionally and the guidance that was supposed to be unaltered became altered. People modified those scriptures and so they are no longer in the holding the same truths and being revealed uh, uh, expressed or communicated to human beings in the same manner and to the point where it starts to become very difficult to say which which points which content what substance was actually part of the authentic scripture and what isn't or what wasn't anymore so this distortion creates doubt and it puts that entire scripture in doubt. You're no longer able to rely on it to say this scripture may be taken and I may be using it, I may use it for my spiritual guidance because of this doubt that is introduced. So he talks a little bit more over the past uh, uh, next few pages in the lesson. He concentrates a little bit more specifically about on the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we'll go through examples of that as they are mentioned. Regarding the Torah, and maybe a couple of words here because he doesn't really provide any introduction to that scripture. I think we those would be really interesting topics to spend more time on and perhaps another series or mini-series of lessons where we explore scriptures in more detail. But when we say Torah, the word is used ambiguously. In a technical sense, the Torah is supposed to refer to the five first five books of the written tradition in Judaism. Okay, so these are, it's usually referred to those five books are called the Pentateuch. And they are part of, these are five books which are part of the 24 books that are the written tradition of Judaism, and that is called the Tanakh. Mm. Okay, so the first five books are the core, the heart of Judaic law, Judaic ideology, and so on and so forth, and then you have the rest. If you add to that everything that the rabbis have explained and written as commentaries over time, this is today called the oral tradition. Okay, so you add a lot more than those 24 initial books. Then that represents the Judaic law and the Judaic heritage uh, as a religion and as a culture. Today. So where did you say the Old Testament fits into this? Yes, 
So the Old Testament is definitely, so there's no oral, there's no oral tradition in it, but you have the written tradition, and that is the Old Testament. So the first five books, not all of it in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, we cannot impose what the, uh, we have to spend a little bit more time on this, but generally speaking, there is a way that, let's say Judaism as an institution, uh, evolved and agreed on what is the canonical text of the religion. It does not necessarily mean that Christianity is going to agree 100% with that. Because they're going to follow their own way of agreeing or not agreeing on what is and what isn't. And until today, there are differences in their schools of thought. Okay? On what constitutes the canonical text or not. So in Judaism, generally speaking, they took whatever Judaism had agreed upon as the canonical text and considered that the Old Testament. And then they put the New Testament, which are the Gospels, which are generally speaking an account of the life and the teachings of Jesus. So these are Old Testament and New Testament. Oral tradition in the Talmud? It would be the Talmud and there is more, but yes, that would include all of that. So the Pentateuch are the first five books. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. Um, so here the author goes into a number of arguments very quickly. The one, one of them is when we look at the figure of God in the Torah. So now we're talking about Judaic scripture, okay? When we look, so obviously, given what we just said, this is what the, this would be representative also of Christianity's Old Testament. Okay, the God figure is very problematic, and we're not going to go through all the details. We're going to give a couple of examples. Generally speaking, keep in mind what we said about the necessary being, the attributes of God, and, and, and. So God cannot be a physical entity. God must be all-powerful, all-knowledgeable, and, and, and. If we keep that in mind and com we compare what we established logically, philosophically, scripturally, until now about God, with the God that we find in the Torah, and as well as the Old Testament in general, it's going to be quite problematic. And we're going to see a couple of examples of that. The second point is, if we go to the figures of the prophets, and we compare what we find in the Old Testament or in the Torah with what we established about prophets until now, we are going to see that it is quite problematic as well. Okay, so these are already some of the main concerns that the author is saying. Anyone who looks at this as a scripture should be having some serious doubts about whether this is actually scripture or not. Okay, so that's the main argument. And then he adds in there, and we'll, we're going to read the passages. So I just identified a couple of passages to establish each one of these points. We're going to read them. The last point he makes here is if the claim is that this book was written to represent the revelation that Prophet Musa received, then how does it talk specifically? There's a lot of examples, but he, this is the one that he mentions. How can it really give this account of the death of Prophet Musa? So obviously it's not Prophet Musa telling us. It must be someone who came after Prophet Musa telling us how Prophet Musa died. Okay? Mm -hmm. 
So imagine the Holy Quran. You would not find the Holy Quran telling you how the Prophet is dying and where he died. Because he would not be the one telling you where he died. Someone else would have to be reporting that. So this is to counter the claim that someone might say, this is the word of God as revealed to Musa. No. So obviously there are passages just with the content itself where we say it cannot be. And we'll read those passages quickly. When he goes to the New Testament, he skips over that, so he doesn't go through it. He just says that it is even more problematic than the Torah, because here we have the Gospels, which, as we said, are an account written about the life of Jesus and his teachings. And, you know, if you read, so these are like just very quick books that I grabbed, and there's dozens upon dozens of others, where we are told, like this book is called How the Bible Was Built by Charles Merrill Smith. He has many books. This is one of them. And very objective. These are scholars. They are, these are believers. So I'm not taking, a, you know, a, a, a apologetic works or, you know, books, polemical works written against. These are by their own scholars who explain when this happened, how the consensus came to be that this is going to be the Old Testament, how this is going to be the New Testament. And you see in the case, for instance, of the Torah, that it happened hundreds of years later, if not thousands. Okay, and the same thing can be said about the New Testament, except that it was 70 to 90 years later that the canonical aspect of it started to come into place. And if you read the names, and, and you know, today we have, how is it that these became the Gospels and other books were excluded from it? You can count 50 or 70 or more Gospels. So why is it that those four became the canonical ones? And so there's a whole history, and it's fascinating that you go through it and you see at which points in time which Gospels were considered more or less canonical until, at some point, the version that we have today of the Old Testament and the New Testament became the canonical versions, okay? So this is a whole topic that we don't have time to talk about. That's why that's the last point here, the history of the causes. The author says we're not going to talk about them, so I'm just giving you some pointers if you want to go back and read. These are some of the big topics to, to uh, research. So the issue that he has is the Gospels, there's not even a claim here. The Gospels are openly, by definition, they are an account of the life of Prophet Jesus and his teachings written much later. Kind of similar to what we have in the Sunnah of the Holy Prophet, the tradition of the Prophet. So it would be similar to that, and not similar to a revelation that is word for word, the words of God. Right? This is where, so our Sunnah, the Sunnah of the Prophet, the tradition of the Prophet, by definition is what? It says basically his life, so his decisions, his sayings, and his actions. Right? Put together, this is what we refer to as a Sunnah. Well, in other words, this is his life and his, his teachings. So this is why when, when we say the Gospels, the closest notion that we have to it in Islam would be the Sunnah of the Prophet and not the revelation of the Prophet. In any case, so these are the main points. And now uh, to go very quickly through some of the examples and we'll see where they fall under the, the headings that we just gave. So first example, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And of course this continues, but just a quick passage. So this is mentioned to show that there's a problem here. Why, does, why is God walking in the garden? And in what sense does he not know where Adam is 
or what has happened. And of course, there is a metaphorical uh, interpretation here that can be added, but we're not going into that. So if we take it at face value, as a revelation is said, here we have an issue. So this is a figure of God, the issues with the figure of God as we talked about them and as we find them in these uh, scriptures. Second instance, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married uh, many of them, uh, any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. And here it's basically, there's kind of a change of mind or a regret or God is starting to realize things that may not have been maybe part of his initial plan about how humanity is evolving and progressing and multiplying. Okay, well, this is very problematic compared to the figure of God that we presented. Okay, so these have to do with the knowledge of God and the will of God. And here's, here it is very limited and there's a change of mind and we cannot accept any of that obviously. Another example here, so Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him. So this is a longer part. Again, so both, both of these, Genesis, Genesis, and this is in Genesis 2. This is a part of a longer passage. I skipped uh, some parts of it, but generally speaking, the this entire passage, if you read the more modern versions of the Bible, this is actually called, the heading of it is, Jacob wrestles with God or wrestled with God. Okay, and so, so Jacob, so this is Prophet Yaqub as you know, the story goes here. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, so that's already an issue. So God has manifested himself to Jacob as a man and he is unable to overpower Jacob. And I skipped a lot of details, so he does something to his hip, and there's a reason why Jews can't eat like the ligaments or the tendons related to the hip because of that story. Then the man said, so this is God speaking, as we'll see at the end of the story. Then the man said, let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he, Jacob is trying to overpower this man and force him to, and we're not going to go through the specifics of the detail, why did Jacob have to wrestle someone and get blessed from him and he still doesn't know who it is so the man asked him what is your name so the man being god is asking this other man prophet jacob what is your name so here it's not clear does he not know who it is or does he know what he wants him to say jacob uh ans jacob he answered then the man said your name will no longer be jacob but israel because you have struggled with god and with humans and have overcome and then the story continues, then he blessed him there. So this is to clearly establish that this is God we are talking about. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Okay, so that's a longer story. These are just the passages that have to do with that part. But here we see God coming to earth, representing himself as a man, and a man that is, you know, with less power than one of his creatures. He's overpowered by him. He is forced to bless, although he did not seem to be really wanting to bless him at the beginning. So that whole story gives a, a certain figure of God that is very problematic compared to the God that we describe until now, or the God that you would expect in a scripture revealed by God to humanity. Okay, so these are some of the things that have to do with the figure of God. Now let's go to the figure of the prophets. And here we have huge problems, and we could have dozens upon dozens of examples. 
I just mentioned two of them quickly. The things that are attributed to the prophets are very, very problematic if we go back in the Old Testament. And we have to keep in mind what we said. Why are prophets sent to humanity? And in part, it's so that they communicate the message of God and act as role models. So if you have people who are so... Um, their nature is so corrupt, and they have so many problems, so many traits of characters, and not just normal traits of characters, traits that the majority of human beings may consider very corrupt. So they're not even meeting the average standard. So how are the more excellent human beings supposed to use them as their role models? Okay, so this is the, the major issue that we have with this. When the figure of the prophet, any of the prophets, is so full of corruption and perversion and issues that we'll go through a couple of stories, then we start doubting how did this story actually become a revelation being taught to humanity as this is what's going to guide your soul. Okay, so the example we have here is of Prophet Dawood and the sad thing is, and I'll mention this in passing, it's not time to get into this, the sad part is people who are not aware of this whole heritage when they read some of the stories that are in our own stories of the prophets, they think that this is all Islamic. When in fact it's a copy-paste of these stories. Okay, so I'm going to leave that comment at that. All I'm saying is be very careful when you need the Qasas al-Anbiya or the Israeli stories. Yeah, and they refer to them as Israelian because they come from Bani Israel. Bani Israel. Although the term is usually used just as any narration that is considered a fabrication of very dubious sources is referred to as Israeliyad. And um, you'll see a lot of copy-paste or with a slight modification. But then you can, you can see where the source is if you are actually well aware of what's in the uh, heritage of previous nations and then you compare to what we find. Because the stories that we have in the Holy Quran are very different from these. But it's sometimes in our narrations we have things that are very similar. Okay, that's, that's what we're saying. So one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around. So this is right after Prophet David, who was also a king, had sent a, an army to fight some enemies. And part of that army, there was Job and Uriah. And so now he's going to be talking about Uriah and Uriah's wife. So Uriah has been sent with Job to go fight an enemy elsewhere. So one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So here, of course, I'm skipping over a lot of details. So in it, he wrote. So he wrote a letter to his commander-in-chief, who's fighting his war for him, and he tells him, put Uriah, Uriah happens to be this woman's husband, put Uriah in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be stuck and die. Uriah the Hittite died. So I'm skipping over, there's a lot more details, I'm going so that we don't spend too much time on this story, but you get the idea. So prophet and king David, the father of Prophet Sulaiman the one who was bestowed this amazing kingdom from God, is this kind of human being, who will send these people, his own people, and if you read when Uriah came back, 
he would not allow himself. He told him, why don't you go? He had him come back and he, he tried to get him drunk and he tried to have him go rest and he would not, he refused Uriah. So we, we are seeing that Uriah is actually of a much more noble character. He says, how do you want me to go and, you know, uh, uh, get uh, rested and, you know, go beside my wife and while the army and my commander and my fellows are fighting the enemy, I can't be in that mood. And he went back. And this is when he wrote the letter. So now you're seeing that the prophet and the king is of a much lower character than one of his army generals or soldiers. So in it, he says, put Uriah in front where the fighting is fiercest and withdraw from him so that he will be stuck and die. And Uriah actually died. So when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And so part of the lineage of Prophet Dawood and King Dawood, David, is came to us through, or came to humanity through this. This con. Of course, we don't believe this. We're saying this is what the scripture is saying about this prophet of God. This is where, why we're saying these are very problematic. This is not commensurate. It's not, it doesn't go with the figure of the prophet that we presented. And this is one example, and there are so many of them. We're going to look at one other one very quickly. So Lot and his, and again, if you, you want to go and, and read the, the story. So this is a copy-paste, of course. I'm, this is not in my words. This is a copy-paste of the, the Old Testament. So this is in Samuel 2, uh, 11. So now we have the story of Prophet Lut, alayhi salam. Lot and his two daughters left Zawar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zawar. So we know the story with the rest of his people who were interested, men were interested only in men, and so at some point he leaves. So he leaves with his two daughters. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to give us children. As is the custom all over the earth, let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine and the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day the older daughter said to the younger, last night I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight and you go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and they named him Moab, and his father of the Moabites today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ammi, and he is the father of the Ammonites of today. Okay, so again, I skipped over some parts, but generally speaking, that's the story. So again, this is the figure of one of God's prophets as it is presented in Genesis. So this is why the author is saying, when you go and look at the figure of God or the figure of the prophets, that alone should be a huge red flag to tell you this cannot be a scripture of God. This was tampered with. Someone came and played with it to distort the image of prophets. So how can I take this as a scripture and base my entire spiritual guidance on this? What has happened here to cause this type of distortion to the prophets of God, to their image in the eyes of people, or to the image of God in the eyes of people? So this cannot be relied on. 
<clears throat> and so this was the story of the death of Prophet Musa salam. Then Moses, uh, Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, uh, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, and so on and so forth. So it mentions all the lands that he showed him. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it through your eyes, but you will not cross, cross uh, over into it. Why? Because Prophet Moses is going to die. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord has said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth, uh, Peor, and it continues. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years. So is it Prophet Moses telling us Moses was 120 years old when he died? Obviously not. Someone is reporting this. Someone is writing this, but it is presented as these are the words spoken by God to Prophet Moses. Well, it cannot be. Okay, so now we are being told this is a you know second account, uh, level account. To this day, no one knows where his grave is. He was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak. Uh, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. So this is in Deuteronomy 34. Now, this is to continue with the stories of the prophets. So here is the story specifically of uh, Prophet Jesus, السلام, peace upon him, when he turned the water into wine. So the story itself is a miracle, and it is presented as one of the greatest miracles, as well as the first. And we'll see that. But the issue is we have a huge problem with wine. And even within the uh, Judaic tradition and the Christian tradition, there are huge di uh, disagreements as to the legality of wine. Okay, and I mentioned one little quick pair uh, quotation here from Corinthians you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the demons too you cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of table of demons and here they say it's a direct uh, reference to alcohol okay I'm not gonna go there's a whole lot of other citations that can be given here references that can be given here I'm not saying that Christianity is going to be in agreement that these are passages saying it's not allowed as I said there's a disagreement and there are a minority of schools within Christianity that do not believe that believe that it's not legal for them to uh, drink alcohol. Generally speaking, the Jews are or, uh, in the Jewish 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 tradition they are against it. They say it's uh, illegal. And generally speaking, Christianity is supposed to be built on the law of Judaism, and that's why you have the Old Testament Testament in front of the New, as it's said in, by Jesus and the Bible itself. In any case. So this is the story. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, so everybody drank what was there, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. And so he said to her, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not come yet. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone jars, uh, water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests. 
uh, have uh, had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. So this is in John 2. So here, as we said, there are contradictions to this legality of giving wine to people and making water into wine and giving it to them to drink in this way. There are problems and contradictions internal. So that's one thing that needs to be sorted out. And secondly, if you add the Islamic layer, so we have narration upon narration that clearly states from the Holy Prophet and the Imams that clearly state that wine has always and will always be forbidden. So for instance, very mutawatir, very well-known authentic narrations. So we'll come to that once it's established and we will establish the uh, validity of the prophethood, the prophethood of our prophet where he says that there is no prophet that has ever been sent to human beings unless that God, once he completes his religion, also makes wine illegal in that religion. And wine has always been and will always be illegal or prohibited by God. Okay, so we have multiple narrations to this effect in, in the Islamic tradition. So this is the additional layer here. Say so just one note here. It mentioned um, sorry. Yeah. his mother and brothers. Yeah. Uh, does according to Christianity. So his mother would be Mary salam, and there yeah. are no other blood brothers here. Oh, the so other brothers on yeah. blood. Okay. So these were the the big items. So these were the examples. As we said, the author quickly mentioned a few points saying these are some contentious, problematic issues if we go to other scriptures. And he only talked about, as we said, Old Testament and New Testament. So we went through them. We gave the examples of what he's referring to exactly. And then he continues and he says, so after all of this, after all these prophets were sent with scriptures and those scriptures were distorted in those ways. Now fast forward about six centuries after prophet Jesus was sent to humanity. And you are now in a barren land where there are very barbaric, uh, unlettered, illiterate, uncivilized people living. And generally speaking, humanity is in a pitiful state. So we're now talking in the year, you know, in the 500s, late 500s. This is what he's referring to. And he's saying humanity is really as far away from spiritual uh, enlightenment and uh, civilization as it can be. And it is at this time that Prophet Muhammad was sent. And so the, the, the verse that goes with this to kind of summarize it, so as we said, we're going to try to re refer to the Quran from now on a lot more. Uh, this is where, you know, Surah Al-Jum'ah, it says, it is he who sent the, to the unlettered a messenger from among themselves. And so here, unlettered can mean a lot of things. But the more, most generic or expansive meaning here is anyone who has not really been taught this kind of guidance and spirituality and wisdom that the, the verse refers to can be considered the unlettered, the ummi. Okay, It is he who sent to the unlettered a messenger from among themselves to recite to them his signs. So you have to link it. So why is he mentioning the unlettered? So they're unlettered in what? So this, this is what they're unlettered in. They are unlettered in the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to understand how the world is made up of everything is a miracle and everything is pointing back to God. Okay, to recite to them his signs, to purify them and to teach them the book and wisdom. 
So the book is generally speaking the law, divine law and wisdom, which is the manner in which you're supposed to conduct yourself, or let's call it moral value system. And earlier they had indeed been in manifest error. And to those, and to those, so he's also sent to those, and to others from among them who have not yet joined him. So this is everybody else who has yet to come to hear the message of Prophet Muhammad, and he is the Almighty Almighty. And so if we go to the words of Imam Ali to describe that time, so he is someone who was born into it and who lived it firsthand, and he's describing it to the people who lived at that time. He says, Allah sent him, so Prophet Muhammad, Allah sent him after the mission of other prophets had stopped, and the peoples had been in deep slumber for a long time. Evils were raising heads. All matters were under disruption, with the flames of wars engulfing all, while the world was devoid of brightness and full of open deceitfulness. Its leaves had turned yellow, and there was absence of hope about its fruits, and its water had sunk underground. So this is a, a metaphor that they understood very well at that time. The minarets of guidance had disappeared, and the signs of destruction had appeared. It was turned to its people and frowned. So this is the world. The world was difficult and a place of hardship. It was turned to its people and frowned in the face of its seeker. Its fruits, or its fruit was vice, and its food was carcass. Its inner dress was fear, and its outer cover was sword. This is the kind of world that they were living in when Prophet Muhammad was sent to them. Okay, so this is where Imam Ali is trying to remind them of the blessing of having him, because now they were, by the time he's saying this, they were actually living as a civilized nation. Okay, where people are not just killing each other for no reason or doing the ghazu and so on and so forth that the Arabs were going to do. Yeah. There might be a little bit of a tangent with that last sentence. Its inner dress was fear and the outer cover was sword. Is that trying to say that they were insecure and they were trying to cover it up by being very aggressive towards each other? I guess you could say that. The text itself is just saying that uh, the the general atmosphere was one of fear because at any time you could be attacked okay. and that's how the Arabs lived and they consider that part of Muruwa as they say right so it was part of Muruwa means this unsaid ethical code where it was perfectly fine for you to attack another family or tribe and to take from them whatever you wanted or needed and that's it. Just be careful not to kill anyone so that there's no blood vengeance between you. And that's how they lived. So you can pillage and steal and take, and that's fine. And then they will attack you. And attacking proactively is even considered an act of courage. And it shows your strength and so on and so forth. If you really read the culture and the mentality of the Jahiliyyah, that's how they lived. And they're well, and you see how that remained with a lot of them, a lot of the companions and the people who accepted Islam, because that was part of their culture. That's what they grew up in, and it's not easy to just let go of all of that and kind of get rewired. And so you see that remaining there for generations afterwards, right? But that's an excellent question. So that's in Sermon 89, if you want to go back and read it. And so here the author says, this is where, given everything that we have said until now, a human being living today, and the way he says it is, since the time that this man, Muhammad, claimed to be a prophet and sent to humanity, anyone who is really seeking the truth, really looking for their own spiritual salvation, should have made researching this claim, this prophethood, the claim of this man and his miracle and his teachings as their main point of concern. 
because there is nothing else right now that contends with that, this level of probability of truth. Okay, so this is the claim here. He says if we look at other scriptures, if we look at other claims, nothing would come close to this. And so if you are objective, if you are really seeking truth, if you are really trying to save yourself, then your energy should be here. And this is the main question that should be, you know, keeping you up at night. And this should have been since the time he was sent, and we'll go through, through some of the reasons why he's saying this in a second, the arguments for his prophethood, since the time he was sent and until today. And in large part, it has to do with what was said until now, and the rest is what's going to come. So what was said until now is, we have no other scripture that is making the claim, even by its own believers, that these are the exact words of God. Today, there is no other scripture. And as we said, if you go to any other scripture, and you go through its history as it's documented by its scholars and its people who are believers in it, yes, there are some words of God in it, but there's a lot of distortion. And some things that may even be said to be the word of God, as we saw, could never be accepted as the word of God. This could not be the God that humanity is going to worship. And these cannot be the prophets that people are going to take as role models and emulate them and imitate them and consider them as the excellent model sent to guide to by God to guide them. Okay, so given all of this and the points that we're going to mention, this should become the main topic of inquiry and study and research for anyone who really is objectively, truthfully, sincerely seeking the truth. So here, you know, if we break it down, you have the prophethood of this man, of Muhammad that's one. You have the Qur'an itself, and then you have the system of all the teachings of Islam. So you have the moral code, you have the legal code, put all together you have this system called Islam. So these should be your main areas of research where you have to say, is there still anything that I can rely on to say there is a revelation, something revealed, so a religion, something revealed by God to humanity that I can follow or not. So now this is the second part of the lesson, inshallah we'll go a little bit faster. This is where we are, the author is now going to try to establish the validity of the claim of the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad. So he says, as we mentioned in Lesson 27, so what was Lesson 27 about? This is where we said that there are three main ways of establishing the prophethood of a prophet. The first one is you rely on their, the traits of their character, their personality, their history, what you know about them firsthand. To see when someone suddenly claims that he is now a prophet sent to humanity to guide them from God, does this person, with someone like this, with the kind of history that you know about them, with the kind of traits, with the kind of personality, with the kind of conduct that you've known about them since they were born until now, does this match? Or is it someone who would tend to cheat and lie and maybe create conditions where they gain something personally from making these kinds of claims? Is that, does it match? Or is there something contradictory here between this personality? Is it someone who just wakes up one day and suddenly they are guided? When their whole life they've been a cheat and a liar and a very problematic human being? Not that there's an issue with someone who asks for God's forgiveness and becomes enlightened and spiritually they clean themselves. That's not the issue. 
That is very okay and very normal and commendable from anyone, from all of us. But if we're saying that God is sending a human being to other human beings to guide them, would He not close that door so that people don't come back to this person and tell him, well, who are you to guide me? Who are you to come with this spiritual enlightenment and guidance, with this message? Why are you worthy of this? Right? So God closes that door, and we talked at length about this in the first 10 lessons. Okay, so this is a personality in the history. The second point is, how do we establish the validity of the prophethood of someone? Is by relying on other prophecies. So if I already believe in another prophet, if I already believe in another scripture that I think I consider valid, I believe in it. And as part of that belief, I must also believe that there are prophecies in there telling me so-and-so is going to come with so-and-so characteristics and traits. So I'm awaiting this. And when it happens, it matches, then I know what happened and what didn't. And I know what's true and what isn't. Because I have a prior belief in a prophecy. Okay? So as we said, the first one is limited. Not everybody can establish it. Right? If you do not have enough of an acquaintance with the personality and the history of someone, it may be a dead road. And the second one is, if you do not have belief in a prior prophecy, this is also going to be a dead road for you. A dead end for you. Okay? But these are very logical, objective ways of establishing the validity of prophethood for someone. And then the third, and that's why we spend so much time on this, is if those two other roads are not open, those options are not available to you, then you have to rely on their miracle. So, I do not know you. I haven't grown up with you. I don't know if you are someone who should be worthy of carrying this type of divine message to humanity or not. I don't believe in a prior prophecy telling me that you're going to be sent. So what's left? What's left is, well, prove you're sent from God. And the way you prove that is through a divine miracle. Something that only God can do or allow you to do. Okay, so that was the whole architecture of the general prophethood as we established it. So now let's come to ap applying those principles to Prophet Muhammad Personality and history. The people living at the time of Prophet Muhammad knew who he was from the time of his birth until the moment he claimed to start to be on a mission from God and he was starting to communicate to them a revelation from God. And during that time, throughout his life up to that point, and then when he started to communicate that message, no one ever had any issue with his personality. And that's why there's such an insistence that it was not just something in passing, that he was always referred to as a Sadiq al-Amin, the truthful one and the trustworthy one. At a time where the Arabs were living in that kind of barbaric and uncivilized world, he was already carrying those traits. And of course, you can add a lot more, and we don't have time to go through his entire history from the moment he was born until then, but his character was well known. And that's why no one ever objected to that, even those who disbelieved him and those who uh, fought against him and those who tried to kill him in his time, the, the over 20 years of fighting and trying to assassinate him. No one could attack his character. So we know from a personality and the history of the person, from the biography of the person, there are no issues that someone like that would be carrying the divine message to humanity. So that's the first way. 
So here the author is basically saying all three are available for the Holy Prophet. His personality, prophecies from other prior prophets, and his miracle. So that's the first. That we go back in his history, and so I would recommend strongly that all of us, we go back and study his life. Especially his life before he started his prophetic mission. To see what did it look like. And why no one could attack his character in that manner. Why did it go without saying that, okay, that if you are going to attack him, that's not why you're going to attack him. Okay? Even those who were the lowliest and the dirtiest of his enemies did not attack that. Because it wouldn't go anywhere. People knew who this man was, how he conducted himself, what kind of traits he had. Okay, so that's one. And, you know, here, like, there are so many stories, that's why I mentioned truthful, trustworthy, they're very well known, but his matters, his wisdom, that there were often fights between tribes, and they would come to him because he was such a, so objective, he had good judgment, he was so just between them, he was always compassionate, the way he treated orphans and the weak, the way he fought against the others to make sure that those who were deprived in society were not so deprived, and so on and so forth. This is all before so when he comes and says, God is revealing to me and whatever is, is revealing to him matches completely, no one can come and say this person just did a 180 on us. Right? Okay. The second point here is previous prophecies. So here I believe, yeah, here the, the author does not actually go and this would take us into a completely different lesson. Um, this is well known. So this would require to be proven properly we would need to go into Islamic history, especially early Islamic history and the lives of a number of the companions of the Prophet. Who were they? A lot of them were actually scholars of Judaism and scholars of Christianity, and they were awaiting something. And when you read the verses of the Quran, you see the environment in which those verses were revealed makes that very clear. There are no uh, issues in the fact that there were prophecies and that these people knew what the prophecies were saying and that they could easily match the prophecies with Muhammad That's a claim here. Okay? So here are a few verses that talk about this. So this is in Surah As-Saf. And remember when Jesus, son of Mary, said, O children of Israel, truly I am the messenger of Allah to you, confirming that which came before me in the Torah, and bearing good news of a messenger to come after me, whose name is or will be Ahmed. Okay, or if we will translate it, you know, in a very literal way, we would say the praiseworthy or the acclaimed one. That's the, the meaning of Ahmed. And when he came unto them with clear proofs, they said, this is manifest sor sorcery. Okay, so the important thing to keep in mind here, yes, of course, the points being made by the verses but also try to keep in mind the environment, the culture, the social environment in which these verses are being revealed. Okay, so it's making clear that those people who are Christians and who are Jews who are listening to this, they're not objecting to this. And we're going to see a few more verses. That's one. A second verse. Those who follow the messenger. The unrestricted. So here, the verse before it talks about those that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to shower and make enter, make them enter into his mercy. And so here, the verse continues and gives their traits. Who is it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about when he says, I'm going to bring them into my mercy? Those who follow the messenger. So this is Prophet Muhammad sallallahu the un uninstructed Prophet, Nabi al-Ummi, whose mention they find written with them in the Torah and the 
evangel or the gospels. So here when the verse talks like this, would you not think that the Jews and the Christians of the time would say, no, there is no such mention? But they never said that. Right? This is, this is the point here. That these verses, they are clearly, explicitly stating that you, Jews and Christians, have recognized that this is the man that was prophesied in your own revelations. He is right here now. So why are you not believing? Okay, that, that's the argument of the verses. And today when we say this, it's easy to say it's kind of like a theoretical argument. But at that time, the argument is being made directly to them. Okay, we're not, we're, we're 14 centuries ago, and the verse is being revealed, and it's being asked, as a, presented as an argument against the Jews and the Christians who are refusing, because many of them accepted. So here the verse is talking about who? About the ones who accepted. So it's saying that many of them are being brought into the mercy of God. Why? Who are they? What are their traits? What are their characteristics? Those who follow the messenger, the uninstructed prophet, whose mention they find written with them in the Torah and the Evangel, who bids them to do what is right and forbids them from what is wrong, makes lawful to them all the good things and forbids them from all vicious things and relieves them of their burdens and the shackles that were upon them. Those who believe in him and honor him and help him and follow the light that has been sent down with him, they are the philosophers. Okay, sorry. Okay, so that's a whole topic. We're not commenting on the verses now. Okay, it's actually the interesting part is if you go back in the uh, in the Bible, you will see that it says, and there's a light. There will be a light that will come out of the mountain. Okay, so the the words are not random. The the verse is talking about a specific uh, verse from the Bible here. But anyways, it's, it's not the time to go about, uh, talk about this. Imam Rada, when he discusses uh, in his uh, uh, discussions with the, the, the scholars of all the religions, he mentions this. So if you go back and you want to read the exact passage of the Bible, as it was said, you know, over you know, 12, 13 centuries ago, you will have the passage exactly as it was, and the Imam reads it as it was. And you will find it today in the books. Those whom we have given the book recognize him just as they recognize their sons. So here the Quran is claiming, is stating that they are so aware, they have such clear knowledge of this prophecy that they should recognize its truth as well as they recognize their own sons. Do you have any doubt when you see your son that this is your son or not? So here are the verses of the Quran, there are multiple verses. Who use that use the same expression those whom we have given the book so those who have the Torah those who have the Injil recognize him just as they recognize their sons but a part of them indeed conceal the truth while they know it another verse those whom we have given the book recognize him just as they recognize their sons those who have ruined their souls so they will not believe okay another verse and when there came to them a book from Allah confirming that which is with them so this is the Quran and earlier they would pray victory over the pagans right they were the ones who represented those who follow God and they're asking God to help them against those who are unbelievers so now there is someone who will lead them to victory over the unbelievers with this book so when there came to them what they recognized they disbelieved it so may the curse of Allah be on the disbelievers. 
And when they hear what has been revealed to the messenger, you see their eyes fill. And so this is the opposite. So the verses talked, the previous two, three verses that we read, they're talking about the ones who rejected. Now let's see the ones who accepted. And when they hear what has been revealed to the messenger, you see their eyes fill with tears because of the truth that they recognize. They say, our Lord, we believe, so write us down among the witnesses. So these are the Jews and Christians who entered, and many of the companions were initially Jews and Christians. Say, tell me, if it is from Allah and you disbelieved in it, and a witness came from the children of Israel, uh, has testified to its like and believed in it, while you are you know, too arrogant to believe in it, disdainful. Indeed, Allah does not guide those who are unjust or wrongdoers. So these are things that were happening and the people were seeing them as they lived them while the revelation was coming down. They are seeing how the scholars of the Jews and the Christians, the monks and the, those who were very well versed in their own revelations and their own scriptures were awaiting these prophecies and they recognized Prophet Muhammad as being the one who had been prophesied. Many of them entered into his mission and to his call, and accepted his call, and many others did not. <coughs> Is it not a sign for them that the learned, so the learned, so it's not just anyone, it's the ones who really know the scripture, that the learned of the children of Israel recognize it? So that's a verse of the Quran. And here the, the author says, so despite, if we go back through the books and we just said that there are distortions and there are fabrications, that there are alterations that have been introduced into the previous scriptures, despite all of that, there are still enough hints and enough points and enough references and prophecies to Prophet Muhammad at that time and today. So this should all be further proof or argument, support to his claim that he said before that if anyone is really interested in pursuing the truth and spiritual salvation, then you have everything you need here. If you consider this to be any indication then you have the prophecies in there. Despite everything we have said, you have enough of a reference to go towards researching this man more and researching his claim more. And yeah, here, so he says, you know, there's a number of Jewish and Christian scholars, even today. So if you go out through the, throughout the centuries, we have many, many of them. Um, so this is one that I'm mentioning here very quickly because he has a book called Muhammad and the, and the Bible. Uh, Professor David Benjamin uh, Kildani, who was a Chaldean priest, he changed his name to Abdul Ahad Dawood. And there are many, many other works. I'm just mentioning one here, but there are dozens upon dozens that you can go back to. Look at the, you know, Muhammad in world scriptures. There are volumes written about this to see where there might be references, and it's up to you to do your own research and to see to what extent you think it matches and it doesn't match. And then the last point, the last way to prove that someone's claim to prophethood is actually valid, is the miracle. So we went through the first two points. So you study the personality of a person, and you, match, you try to match it with the claims being made. You go through previous prophecies to see, could this be the person that the other prophets were promising? Which, by the way, not only establishes the validity of this later prophet and their prophethood, but it also establishes the validity of their own prophethood because their prophecy became true. Okay, so that's another argument that we didn't really talk about. But the third way is 
So let's say those two, if we put them aside, we don't know the personality enough, and we cannot rely on previous prophecies enough, then what we're left with is the miracle. What we're left with is the claim that I am truly sent from God, and I'm going to give you something that no one else can match to prove that this is really sent from God to you. And this is a miracle. And so the next lesson, we will inshallah go through the main uh, miracle of Prophet Muhammad, which is the Holy Quran. And there's a lot to, to say here. We'll just summarize it with a couple of lines quickly. If you go through the books of history, you go through the books of theology, there are a lot. There are some who have said this between 5,000 and 6,000 miracles attributed to Prophet Muhammad. The way we're going to present the next lessons, let's put all of those aside and work with the only miracle still left in our hands, which is the Quran. And we'll see, we'll try to see in what way is it miraculous or not. And could this be the scripture and the revelation that seals the deal and clearly becomes the proof that this man who claims to be sent from God is actually sent from God. Okay, so this will be covered in the next lesson, inshallah. And may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and his progeny. So the Sayyid has another commitment at 7.30, so we can take a quick question. If the sisters have a question, we can take uh, one question. Well, anyone from the brothers has a question? So uh, actually, no, I asked about it. Yeah. Uh, You're fair. It's, uh, it's about the uh, Ummi uh, word in the Quran. Uh, so you translated it as uninstructed. Mm -hmm. uh, but just before, we also saw the. Uh, or unlettered. Or unlettered. Or yeah. Could you just uh, explain again uh, the, the word? Yeah. Is it the people who are unlettered, so, or is it the Prophet? Yeah, so the way that translate, this translation was done, when, when they talked about yes. it talked about the people, it said the unlettered people. Yeah. When it talked about the Prophet, it said uninstructed. Okay. What is clearly established about Prophet Muhammad that we know for sure historically is that no one ever taught him to read and write. And this, was, this became an argument for the validity of his prophethood later that... He could not have gone out somewhere and found some books and old scriptures and tales and come back to his people having read them and told them about them as though they are revelations. That, that was the point. Okay. okay. So that's if you want to take the word ummi as meaning unlettered. But unlettered would not be the right yeah. translation. Why? Because no one has said that Prophet Muhammad could not read and write. What did we just say? We said there is no proof there is proof that no one has taught him to read and write. But we also have indications that he could read and write. And he recognized the writing. And he could point his finger on the right word and say, erase this word or write that word. Okay? So that opens a whole discussion about whether he could or not. And was it a miraculous thing or not? Because sometimes it's presented as one of... It's kind of an imposed restriction on the Prophet from God yeah. that he made it so that he does not know how to read and write to protect his own message, which is the Qur'an, from being attacked as though it's something stolen, having been read elsewhere. Okay? So that's, that's that argument. Does it stand or not? That's a whole topic that needs to be discussed. But there are other, there are other interpretations to the word. 
And those, there's a number of them. One of them is an Ummi, simply someone who comes from Umm Al-Qura, yeah, Umm Al-Qura being Mecca, so the mother of the cities. And there are actually other interpretations too of the word Ummi, and that requires its own uh, discussion. <laughs>